of creation. The second is, if this material does tell us something of what God did in creating, how seriously does it address the question of creation out of nothing? I take it that if we answer the first question by saying that these chapters do not address the question of what he did, then the second is somewhat moot. If the only goal of the accounts is to establish a theology of creation unrelated to what God actually did, then what they might say about how he brought the world into existence is a matter of no consequence. On the other hand, if these chapters do intend to tell us something of how God made the world, the question of creatio ex nihilo takes on some importance. To begin to address the first question, I take it we all agree that the Bible is the revealed word of God in which the one transcendent, personal, triune spirit has revealed to us his nature, his purposes for human life, his diagnosis of the human problem, and his solution to the problem in Jesus Christ. But where we might disagree is the basis upon which those truths are presented to us. In particular, how integral to the theology is the space-time setting in which that theology emerges? Can they be separated? Given that the Bible, uniquely among the holy books, roots its theological discourse in unique events and persons in time and space, that is, in human historical experience, how much of that setting must we give credence to? And furthermore, what is the function of that setting, of setting the revelation in time and space? Is it merely stage setting, as it were? Or is that material inseparable from the theological assertions that we may extrapolate from it? For example, does it matter whether there was an Abraham or not? That is, can a true theology of grace and election be extracted from a legend? Of course, we've all heard the cliche, fiction often conveys truth better than facts. Apart from the fact that this is a false dichotomy, the much more important question is, does the Bible represent itself in that way as using what are obviously legends and sagas to convey great truth? It does not. On the other hand, we have many examples from the ancient Near East of that sort of thing perhaps chief of which is the Gilgamesh epic. There we find legend, what I'm calling what, pressed into service to express some rather profound reflections on the nature of life. Why? The differences between the Gilgamesh epic and the Abraham narrative are striking, even stunning. In the epic, the central character is lifted out of ordinary life precisely so that he may function as a representative figure. He is every man, a vehicle through whom certain truths gleaned from life experience can be expressed. Thus, we go from truth to Gilgamesh. Abraham, on the other hand, is not a representative figure. He is presented, whether we accept the fact or not, as one unique individual through whose real-life experiences certain truths about reality are revealed. So why the difference? In the case of Gilgamesh, 
speculation about reality is expressed in a historical story. The Abraham narrative, on the other hand, recounts an encounter between God and an actual person, in the context of which we encounter Abraham and we learn something of the nature of reality, namely that God is not an arbitrary superhuman, a God, lowercase g, but rather, unlike the gods, is profoundly trustworthy. That is, here, the why, theology, emerges from the what, divine activity including speech in time and space, rather than the what existing as a vehicle for the intuited why. Now perhaps you're saying, what does all this have to do with creation? Only this, I am concerned that many of us who willingly grant that biblical theology emerges from the encounters with the divine in human historical experience after Genesis 12 seem all too ready to deny that necessity when it comes to all our parts of Genesis 1 to 11. In other words, the modus operandi of Genesis 1 to 11 is taken to be different from the rest of the Bible. I think this is very dangerous in that we are, in this opening segment of the Bible, replacing the very genius of the Bible with the manner of thought that the Bible is at pains to deny elsewhere. From that point of view, this segment takes certain ideas, perhaps intuitively derived from elsewhere in the Bible, and uses traditional forms from the ancient world as vehicles for those ideas. That is, what is made a vehicle for why? My response is, on the basis of the rest of the Bible, if we have no reliable indication of what God did in creation, then the why loses its warrant for our acceptance of it. It is speculation, perhaps inspired speculation, but speculation nonetheless and not revelation. Could God have done that? <laughs> I suppose so, but I don't know why he would. Furthermore, as I'll try to demonstrate briefly below, there's good reason to believe that he did not. Before we leave this topic, we must inquire whether the biblical account, as is being increasingly asserted, is indeed shaped to some degree by ancient Near Eastern myths of origin. I do not call them creation myths because they're not about creation, a term which, because of its biblical associations, implies an absolute beginning. It is simply not the case that the biblical account rests upon such a base. There is far too much of a tendency among modern evangelicals to make much of the many superficial similarities between the Bible and the literatures of the cultures surrounding Israel and not to pay enough attention to the essential differences between them. While there are similarities, it is the radical difference in the worldview, not to mention genre, between that which is found in the Bible and in the rest of ancient literature that should grasp our attention. One cannot read the Enuma Elish in its entirety, or even the 85 lines on the building of a temple for Marduk, and believe that Genesis 1 and 2 are really the same kind of literature, or even thinking of the world in the same ways. 
I've laid this much emphasis upon this point because I believe it is so critical to what we are about. If the biblical accounts represent simply an odd mutation of ancient Near Eastern religion and literature, however precious that mutation may be to us personally, then it does not matter whether we agree or disagree over what we think it happens to say about the origins of the cosmos and of life on this obscure little planet. It has lost its claim to be authoritative revelation. But if we grant the possibility that it is authoritative revelation, that the what and the why of creation are inseparably related, then we may ask a further tripartite question. Did the cosmos have an absolute beginning? Did God, the transcendent personal triune spirit, exist prior to the origins of the cosmos? And did he bring the universe into existence from nothing? If we say yes, then I would ask on what basis do we make these assertions? I hear contradictory answers. Many reply with something like the following. Well, the Bible teaches it, though, of course, it's not in Genesis. I then ask, then where? Where is it taught in the Bible? Is it Nehemiah 9, 6? You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, and the earth that all, and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitude of heavens worship you. Is that it? Or is it Psalm 90, verse 2? Before the mountains were brought forth, or you brought forth the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Is that it? Or is it the poem about wisdom in Proverbs 8, 22 to 31, which reads in part, The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before the deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. But all of these are more elusive than actual assertions. It's only in 2 Maccabees 7.28, which I assume you've not read for your devotions recently, that we first find a bald assertion. There we read, I beg you, my child, look at the heaven and the earth and see everything that is in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. And in the same way, the human race came into being. Finally, in the New Testament, there are the statements found in Romans 4.17. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was made out of what was invisible. But even these New Testament statements are open to varying interpretations. Given this data, Gerhard May, a German theologian writing in 1994, argued that the Bible's witness to creation from nothing was ambiguous and that the doctrine was really developed in the late second century to combat the Hellenistic idea of the eternity of matter. 
Paul Copan and William Lane Craig have refuted this argument in an authoritative way in their book, Creation Out of Nothing. I recommend it warmly, and I do not intend to repeat all the data they present here. However, I do want to underline some of the main arguments and then explicitly argue that unless creatio ex nihilo is not merely explicit, implicit in Genesis 1, but is an assumption for the rest of the biblical writers based upon Genesis 1, then May's argument may make some sense. If in fact, though, Genesis 1 was understood by later biblical writers to teach the truth that God created the earth from nothing, then their allusive references to the idea make sense. But if, as some of us now maintain, Genesis really has no interest in the question, then the first and only reasonably clear statement does not appear in the canon until the very end of the New Testament period in the book of Hebrews. That is hardly the basis for a robust doctrine of creation. On the other hand, if we understand that creatio ex nihilo is not merely implied by the language of Genesis 1, 1 to 3, but is the logical conclusion from what is said there, we have the foundation upon which the rest of the biblical teaching can stand. Furthermore, we have a solid basis from which to understand the meaning of creation for Christian faith. All this being said, let me return to the question, how does Genesis and by extension the rest of the Bible, speak to the common notion, not only in the ancient world, but in the modern one as well, that matter, in some form or another, has always existed. As I've pointed out above, some say the text does not pronounce on the subject. I say again, that if the text does not pronounce on the subject, then the whole doctrine of creation is called into question. Because finally... The entire biblical worldview rests on this one point. For you see, there really are only two worldviews. The biblical one and the other one. The other one says the cosmos is the sum total of reality. There are variations on this theme, but the central point remains the same. It may take a modern slant with some suggestion that matter is the indestructible base and that all sorts of energy, including spiritual energy, are derived from it. Or it may take a more ancient form in which the material elements are infused with spirit. The biblical view is unique. It has never been consistently maintained in any other source. That view is that the psycho-socio-physical cosmos is not all there is. There is a triune personal spirit who, while utterly transcending the cosmos, can and does penetrate the cosmos at will. The cosmos only exists because he wills it to. The conflict between these views did not come to the fore only in the Hellenistic era. It reaches as far back in history as we can go. Here is what distinguishes the Bible from every other religious literature in the world, with the possible exception of its derivative, the Quran. 
If we say that Genesis 1, the account of the origin of the cosmos, has no interest in the question of the eternal existence of matter, we really have made that chapter of no relevance to a biblical theology of creation. But Genesis 1 does address the question. First of all, it asserts that God exists prior to matter. But does it? Recently, at least to some extent, driven by the conclusion that Genesis has the same worldview as its neighbors, the proposal has gained currency that Genesis 1 and 2 should be translated as when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void. That is, it says nothing one way or the other to the point of God's pre-existence. Many of you will be aware of the issues involved in this reading, but for those who are not familiar with them, let me recap them briefly. The traditional translation, as found in the King James tradition, takes the opening words as an independent clause, functioning as an opening colophon. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Here, there can be no question but that God pre-existed the cosmos, as expressed in the merism, heaven and earth. This reading has the full support of all the ancient versions. However, the word translated beginning, reshit, appears to be in the form of a construct noun, beginning of. When it appears with nouns such as rule, it results in a temporal clause, translated as in the beginning of the rule of or when X began to rule, for instance, Jeremiah 26.1. However, if the term is taken as a construct, Genesis 1.1 is the only place in the Bible where it is in construct with a verb. More likely, it should be understood as the versions have understood it as a substantive, as it is in Isaiah 46.10. I make known the end, acharit, from the beginning, Reshit. Possibly it was thought originally to have an understood though unexpressed genetic complement as in the beginning of time or the beginning of things and then came to be understood simply as it is here an independent noun. In any case, there is good reason to vary from the traditional reading which makes, excuse me, there is no good reason to vary from the traditional reading, which makes the pre-existence of God very, very explicit. But perhaps the writers conceived of some sort of dualism, whereby both spirit and matter pre-existed the present cosmos. This idea gained currency with the rise of the conclusion that all the ancient origin myths began with some sort of primeval matter in chaotic form. This original matter was typically seen as being watery in nature. The gods emerged from this watery chaos, often by sexual means, but then chaos sought to get rid of his or her unruly offspring, typically because they were making too much noise. That was definitely created by parents. In the upshot, the gods defeated chaos and reordered matter into its present form. 
This idea was popularized and applied to the Bible by Hermann Gunkel, writing in 1895. In this light, the reference to without form and void, Hebrew tohu vabohu, seemed to be a clear reflection of this theme. When that was coupled with the decision to take the opening clause of Genesis 1-1 as a dependent temporal clause, it all seemed to make perfect sense. Genesis 1 was a sterilized form of an original Hebrew creation myth in which the gods, Elohim, plural, defeated chaos. In this form, when God began to create the cosmos, he had to reorder chaotic pre-existing matter. The ambiguity regarding whether he himself perhaps emerged from the matter was the result of the sterilization process. However, the consensus concerning creation and chaos has begun to be called into question. Students of ancient cultures from Ugarit to Rome have begun to reevaluate their sources and question whether the struggle with the forces of chaos was as determinative for originating order as they had supposed. But beyond that, it is now seriously questioned whether chaos and the so-called chaos monster have any relevance for Old Testament studies at all. Rebecca S. Watson has exhaustively reviewed all the supposed references to chaos, particularly in the Psalms, and has reached the conclusion that, quote, the term chaos should be abandoned in respect of the Old Testament, close quote. As regards Genesis 1, while she counts this as one of the late texts, exilic or later, she does not see tohu vabohu as having anything to do with pre-existent chaotic matter. Rather, she follows the lead of David Sumura, who has convincingly argued that tohu refers to what is empty and uninhabited, not something chaotic. In summary, then, we can see that it's incorrect to believe that Genesis 1, 1, and 2 envisions some pre-existent and perhaps resistant matter expressed by tohu vabohu, out of which God proceeded to fashion the cosmos. Rather, what it tells us is that God's first creative act was to form the game board, as it were, upon which he would then place the creatures that he spoke into existence. Thus, our text leaves no room for any idea of pre-existent matter. It tells us that only one element existed before everything else, God, who in his divine will would speak the worlds into existence. We've now discussed what I think of as the two links in the chain which establishes the understanding that God made the universe from nothing is the assumption of Genesis 1 and 2 and is the assumption upon which the biblical doctrine of creation rests. The first link is the assertion that in the beginning, before anything else existed, God acted. There is the pre-existence of God. The second link is that matter did not coexist with God, but was made by him. The third link has to do with what it was God did. This is the term bara. When the Hebrew text says that God performed the action that the verb bara connotes, what was he doing? 
First of all, it is of no small consequence that cognates for bara only appear in late Syro-Aramaic and in Old South Arabic, both with the sense of building. There is no cognate for bara in Akkadian or Ugaritic, and there is no equivalent concept in Sumerian or Egyptian. Yet, the concept occurs some 50 times in the Hebrew Bible. This fact strongly suggests that the concept it expresses is one that is unknown elsewhere. That's what we would expect, given the fact that none of the surrounding cultures know anything of a God who pre-existed matter, bringing matter into existence, both non-physically and non-mechanically. A second important point is that the only subject used for this verb is God. This is a profoundly theological significance. This is something unique that only God does. It's not something you and I do. Only he does this. Helmer Ringgren expresses it this way. Bara is used to express clearly the incomparability of the creative work of God in contrast to all secondary products and likenesses made from already existing material by man, close quote. W.H. Smith makes the following trenchant observations. Number one, there is no evidence whatsoever that bara one, which means create in the Cal and Nifal, is derived from the same root as bara three, which only occurs in the PL, to cut. Two, citing Wellhausen, the term stands for nothing else than the creative agency of God as opposed to all human shaping and making. Three, no material from which God performs this activity is ever mentioned. The, four, the objects vary, but they are always special, extraordinary, new. Five, God's activity brings about something new, which as such did not exist before. While both Ringgren and Schmidt mention in asides that the word does not explicitly express creation out of nothing, both their discussions make it very clear that such an understanding must be included in our understanding of the verb. This is exclusively divine activity involving no expressed material, contrasting with the way in which humans make things, as a result of which something that has not existed before emerges. Even in the case where something has existed before, as for instance, the heart in Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart. Even in that case, it appears that the writer, David, according to the superscription, is not asking for a renovation of his previous self-construct, but for a completely new one one that is not defiled by self-serving sin. So also in the case of Israel, when God is said to have created a people for himself, Isaiah 43.1, he has brought into existence something that had not existed in any form previously, a people belonging exclusively to Yahweh. So in the light of this discussion, what does bara mean in Genesis 1.1? Clearly, it means that God made the universe out of nothing. 
there was nothing out of which to make it. The unique word bara was used for this very purpose. This was an act of God. It required no prior material. It resulted in a new product unlike anything before. Does the word always express creation of something out of nothing? No. Can it express such a thing? Without doubt. And in the context of Genesis, that is exactly what it means. This understanding is furthered by the fact that the effective mode of creation is speech. God spoke the worlds into existence. The Hebrew understanding of davar, word, as an event or a thing that is brought into existence when it is spoken is very important here. It is only in the act of speech that the thing comes into existence. And being now existent, it has an existence all its own apart from the speaker. Thus, Forster can say of Genesis 1, here creation is an action. It arises out of nothing but the word of God. Unquestionably, the Apostle John agrees with this understanding as he begins his gospel with the classic words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through, all, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John 1, 1 to 3. However, <clears throat> oops, wrong button. There have been two alternative understandings proposed in recent years that contest this widely held understanding of bara. In a longer version of this lecture, <laughs> there is such a thing, I deal with each of them at some length. Here, I'll only summarize the arguments. The first is that of Ellen Van Wolda, who has proposed that the meaning of the word is to separate. The major argument against such an idea is that while bara is regularly paralleled with words having to do with make, shape, and form, it is never paralleled with words having to do with separation. Beyond that, it never falls within the domain of separation. A second recent proposal for the understanding of bara comes from John Walton. This is in the context of his understanding of Genesis 1 that this is simply a theology of creation in which God is assigning functions to the various elements which already exist. He proposes that the word should mean something like to create by assigning functions. In the first place, this is a meaningless collocation in modern English. The accepted meaning of the word create is to bring something into existence or cause something to happen. To assign a function is not to create in English. Walton argues that people in the ancient world had no real interest in the material origins of the universe and that therefore the word bara cannot have had anything to do with bringing something into existence. I wonder how he can make that assertion from this distance. The ancient Greek philosophers like Thales and Heraclitus were certainly concerned 
with the material basis of the universe. Furthermore, the objects of bara in Genesis 1 certainly are material, including heaven and earth, the sea monsters, 121, and human beings, 127. Even if one takes this meaning for bara, which Professor Walton has created, pun intended, namely that the word means to assign a function, all these objects are material. One can only say that God was not bringing these material things into existence if one has predetermined that the verb cannot mean to do, to make, or to shape. Thus far, this study has argued that the concept of creation out of nothing is understood by the writer of Genesis 1 and is intended. It is not explicitly stated, but it is understood and intended. The language chosen makes the point clear. I have identified three links in the chain of argument and mentioned the fourth. They are, in the beginning, God created. God existed before matter. The earth was empty and uninhabited. Matter did not exist, coexist with God. Third, God created. He brought something into existence that had not existed previously. And fourth, God spoke. Matter did not emerge from the body of God. When these are all taken together, I believe that the idea that God brought the cosmos into being from nothing is the only natural conclusion, one that the rest of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, takes for granted and thus does not feel a need to mount an argument for. In the final section of this paper, I want to look at what might be called a case study in support of the assertions made in the previous paragraph. The single largest collection of reflections on creation to be found in the Bible is in the book of Isaiah, between chapters 40 and 65, and especially between 40 and 48. Here, the verb bara occurs 20 times, 14 in 40 to 48, three times as frequently as in Genesis. I believe that the prophet uses the term with the understanding that the cosmos was created out of nothing. He is utilizing the term because of the centrality of the concept of creation, including creation from nothing, in his case against the Babylonian idol gods. His point is to say, since the gods did not create the world and thus can give no account of such a creation, the former things, Isaiah 41, 22, etc., therefore they can give no account of the direction and purpose of the creation, the things to come, Isaiah 41, 22, etc., Furthermore, since they are simply cosmic forces wearing human-like masks, all the work of humans, they cannot foretell the future in any specific way. But Yahweh, being the transcendent creator, who is not part of the cosmos, can see the cosmos and all that occurs in it from beginning to end and can make, indeed has made, just such predictions. Finally, being the creator, unfettered in any way except by his righteous love, he can deliver his people from exile, something unheard of and deemed impossible, and in the end, create a new heaven and a new earth. 
In all this, the continuing emphasis is upon Yahweh's ability to do new things, things that had never occurred before. Here is where the assumption of creation out of nothing comes into play. These things that Yahweh was going to do had no prior existence. They were de novo. The gods, part of the never-ending cycle of existence, could only do differing versions of what they'd always done and always would do. That cosmos has no beginning and no end. In it, one can never truly be delivered from the past. Salvation can never be transformation, but only self-realization. In a longer form of this paper, and there is one, I have surveyed all of the 20 occurrences. However, for the purposes of this lecture, I've chosen a selection, which I believe make the point adequately. In Isaiah 40, 26, as mentioned above, Yahweh creates the heavenly host. That is, he brought them into being. He made them. Unlike Marduk in the Enuma Elish, who only, quote, constructed stations for the great gods, close quote, all of whom pre-existed him. In 4028, he is also the creator of the ends of the earth. Thus, in these two verses, Isaiah is clearly beginning his treatment in the same place Genesis does. Yahweh is the sole creator of the cosmos, which exists only because he wills it to exist. Then, in 41, 20, 18 to 20, Yahweh promises to do a series of unheard of things, such as making rivers flow on barren heights, all to show that he has done this. He has created it. Here again, the emphasis is upon Yahweh's ability to do things never heard before, things that are without precedent, entirely new. In 42, 5 and 6, it is the creator of the heavens and earth who gives breath, nishmach, as in Genesis 2, 7, to its people. And who then miraculously calls and sustains the servant who will restore the creator's intended order, mishpat, to the cosmos. Here in two verses, we have creation, recreation, capsulized. The one who did something completely new in creating the earth is able to do the impossible, become human in order to recreate it. In 43.1, the connection between creation and salvation is made explicit. Yahweh created and formed Jacob Israel and he has redeemed them. It is significant that it is not merely said, as it is elsewhere, that God called them or chose them. No, he created them, formed them. That is, he brought them into existence. As Peter says, those who were no people, he has made a people, 1 Peter 2.10. So the one who made them has redeemed them. See 54.5, your maker is your redeemer. If anything, that thought is made even more forcefully in 43.7, where we read, Every one of Israel who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. It seems to me that the expansion of created by means of formed and made leaves no room for any connotation of assigning a function without reference to the origin of the things so defined. Equally, there's no room left for any connotation of separation among things already existing. 
This is to make something brand new. The same paralleling of form and make is found in what is almost the parade statement of the unique nature of creation in the Bible. It is a verse that is troubling to some readers. It's a statement found in 45, 6c to 7, which says in the context of divine assertions of absolute uniqueness, I am Yahweh, and there is no other, who forms light and creates darkness, who makes good and creates evil. It is particularly the last clause that troubles people with its suggestion that God causes moral evil. That is certainly not the case. But that's not the point I want to emphasize here. The point that Yahweh is making with this statement is that everything in the cosmos exists solely because of him. There is no other first cause anywhere. Nothing exists apart from him. In this context, of course, anything other than creation out of nothing is impossible to imagine. Along with 45.7, 45.18 is another parade example of the point being made in this paper. Here we're told that God did not create the earth to be an uninhabited wasteland. If in fact it is the tendency of the world as we know it to return to such a state as the second law of thermodynamics would have it, that is not what the creator intended. Nor is the world meaningless and purposeless. He did not speak secrets in a land of darkness. This is the diametric opposite of the dark, meaningless, shapeless, watery matter that ancient people from Sumer to Rome thought was the eternal state of things from which human security had to be continually wrested. No, as, Genesis, as Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. There was purposive creation from the outset with no resistant opposing force to be overcome. Thus, 46.10 says, Yes, 46.10 says, I make known the end from the beginning, Reshit, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. I would suggest that Reshit is being used here as a conscious allusion to Genesis 1.1. The final occurrences of Barah in the book of Isaiah are of great significance. In the chiastic structure of chapters 56 to 66, 63.7 to 65.16 are reiterating the sinfulness of an Israel that arrogantly assumes that its elect position guarantees it a place of approval from God. First dealt with in the previous member of the chiasm in 56.9 to 59.15a. Chapter 65 uses harsh language to describe this condition, ultimately contrasting you, the arrogant self-righteous, with my servants who are contrite and faithful. This subunit closes with the statement concerning the servants. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. 
This leads into the beautiful poem that is a description of final redemption, 65, 17 to 25. This is the kingdom of the Messiah. 65, 25's clear allusions to 11, 6 to 8, messianic psalm, concluding with the quotation word for word of 11, 9a, makes it plain. With the poem ending on that note, <clears throat> it is very significant that the opening verse, 65, 17, contains a clear allusion to Genesis 1, 1. See, I will create new heavens and new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. It seems to me unmistakable that the prophet is drawing on the idea of creation out of nothing as he looks at what is to come. Just as the original creation had no pre-existing basis, neither will this one. Thus, he says that the former things, the original creation and the tragedy that enveloped it, will not even be remembered. Instead, Yahweh will create something completely new. The repetition of create in verse 18 is not accidental. The redeemed will rejoice forever in this new creation, for he will create a new Jerusalem that will be a delight and not a reproach. I say again that the prophet is assuming the doctrine of creation out of nothing as his inspired imagination sees the new creation. Will there be continuities? Of course, it's a new Jerusalem. But it will not be the old Jerusalem renovated. It will be a new start. This is what is in the mind of John when he speaks of a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heaven. Because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. The allusions to Isaiah 65, 17 to 25 are all through Revelation 21, 1 to 5. And those allusions reach their climax with the royal pronouncement in Revelation 21, 5. I am making everything new. For Isaiah, creation involves that divine activity whereby something without precedent comes into being, something that's not dependent upon or conditioned by any preceding element. The prophet uses the word in this way because this is his understanding of the word and the concept based upon his understanding of the initial assertions in Genesis 1 and following. As we bring this discussion to a close, the words of Alan J. Torrance are most appropriate. Finally, quote, finally, the collective effect of all the above, that is what he had previously said in the article, should be to affirm in the most radical way that the Christian faith knows no doctrine of creation that is not a doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. If this doctrine is not to be found as the pre-understanding of Genesis 1, then it's hard to understand the doctrine as anything other than a theological inference, something that is hardly essential to creation faith as Torrance has framed it. Thank you.